Hey, welcome back to the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate podcast, where we venture behind the headlines to figure out what's really happening with the issues of the day, with the help of expert guests from the worlds of politics and culture. Your host is anthropologist and broadcaster Sally Warhart. Thank you. It's great to be back here at Maid in fabulous Ballarat with you, Wayne Swan. And, uh, of course, Wayne is the member for Lilly in Queensland. He was the federal treasurer from 2007 to 2013. He was the deputy prime minister from 2010 till 2013. And the Euro Money Finance Minister of the Year in 2011, which, of course, was worthy of a great round of applause. And now the author of, I'm sure, soon to be best-selling, The Good Fight. And, uh, well, Wayne, I want to take you back to Christmas 2007. You've had your cup of tea and your vovos or whatever they were called, and, uh, or perhaps a champagne, and you've won something you have been working towards doing, forming government being treasurer for so many years. And with that time to think about what you were inheriting and doing, there are no signs that the worst global financial crisis since the Great Depression is about to descend upon you. What were your plans and hopes that Christmas? Well, I was particularly concentrating on what was a pretty big reform agenda that we'd taken to the people in 2007 and I was spending Christmas doing a lot of reading, uh, you know, finalising the office, all of those things you do as you're settling in. But I was also doing some reading and I normally go to the Sunshine Coast, which is where I was brought up uh, at Christmas. So I was up at uh, Cotton Tree and I was, there was a couple of books I was reading. One was um, Ross Fitzgerald's Red Ted, which was uh, a story of what happened to Ted Theodore in particular during the events of the Great Depression uh, within the Scullin government. So he was the treasurer in the Scullin government? For a short period of time, and he was, an early, uh, he was an early Keynesian. And, of course, the story of that period is that under the pressures of the, of the, uh, of the Great Depression, austerity-type policies were forced upon the Scullin government. It fractured. And during, the, uh, during that, uh, uh, Theodore had been forced to stand aside. And the consequence was that the response of that government and subsequent governments was not sufficient, and Australia experienced a huge impact of that global depression, massive unemployment, community destruction that goes with it. That well, was very why much were a... you reading that, Wayne, of well, all, of all well, the things? Exactly. <laughs> but I, was, I wasn't only reading that, I was also reading a book called Black Swan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, which is about uh, improbable events, one in a one-in-a-thousand-year type events which can occur. And I was also reading Alan Greenspan's book as well, uh, which was entirely appropriate given that it was some of his policy settings that actually produced the global financial crisis. So I was reading all, reading all three, but there was a bit of volatility going on around that time. In fact, uh, I had to go and deal with some banks jacking up interest rates um, out of cycle during that period, which was partly a consequence of the uh, volatility that was already going on in financial markets. And I do remember one day having to go and do a press conference in the Black Swan Room at the Maroochydore <laughs> Surf Club. And by the way, uh, Maroochydore is Aboriginal for Black Swan. Is that right? Exactly. You want to be called after a bird in Australian politics if you want to be remembered, don't you? Well, Peacock, well, perhaps... hawk, swan, <laughs> you're right up there. Yeah. Well... A real worry was I was walking up from our unit to the to the surf club one day to do the press conference about the banks being unreasonable with by jacking up rates and so on, and my real fear was the TV would get a picture of me walking into the black swan room <laughs> as I was doing my press conference. But the long and the short of it was that Christmas uh, I, and in that week, in fact, I did receive a phone call from Hank Polson, who was the U.S. Treasury Secretary. Uh, which left me worrying about where we really were because it was a reassuring phone call in some ways. But he said, look, I think we'll be all right if, just if, uh, our property market, uh, you know, manages to hold up from where it is now because the US at that stage was going into recession. And it was really from that 
that phone call on that I started to worry, as did, did indeed the, the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, that we might just be facing a, a series of events which were much bigger than many policymakers or the press coverage was actually looking at at the time. This, this was one of my first real surprises reading this story again, and it is... You know, it's nail-biting, even though you know how it turns out, it, it, actually seeing how it all happened. And what, the, the first surprise is how sudden it all seemed to be. Um, you were handed your red book from the Treasury upon becoming Treasurer, which is what they give the incoming government, um, and it's nothing, nothing in the hundreds of pages of your briefing to mention that this could be... No, the Red Book was all about how we would uh, need to put in place a set of policies which would deal with inflationary pressures in our domestic economy, which that year reached 16-year highs. We'd had 10 interest rate rises in a row under the Howard government and there were more to come uh, during our early periods and months in office. So the whole public discussion at this stage wasn't about recession, wasn't about financial breakdown, it was about really how strong the economy was growing globally and domestically, resulting in inflationary pressures, resulting in interest rate rises. And of course the Red Book that was handed to us was all about what we would do about uh, infrastructure, for example, to deal with the capacity constraints in the economy because there had been a decade of underinvestment in infrastructure, uh, and what we would do to implement our own agenda, things like the NBN. But most importantly, what we should do to cut back on expenditure to ease the inflationary pressures and to ease interest rate pressures in the economy. But as we went through the first half of the year, it became readily apparent to Kevin and I that, in fact, there could have been an alternative scenario that while simultaneously we were publicly dealing with pressures in oil prices and food prices uh, globally and nationally, that there was this subterranean shaking going on in the global economy that could actually produce an entirely different scenario from the one that we are actually preparing policy for. Mm. So, you know, there was these dual influences happening and that made policy making in some ways difficult uh, and uncertain. So by the time that we, I got to the IMF World Bank meetings uh, in London uh, in April of that year, we had seen the collapse of, uh, of Bear Stearns, which then was the fifth biggest investment bank in the United States, which had caused a lot of volatility in the economy, but it had settled. But we were sitting at a meeting with investors in the uh, Washington Embassy dining room with Ken Henry and a series of investors, and one of them, an Australian uh, from one of the large hedge funds, was there. And I'd said, well, look, Bear Stearns has come and gone. The US has intervened. It's settled down. Financial markets are looking like they're OK. Global economy is still going well. What do you think, Tim? What do you think's going on? And he said, Wayne, this isn't the end. This isn't the beginning of the end. This is just the end of the beginning. I said, oh, yeah. So what you're saying is we've just had the fifth biggest US investment bank collapse and that's just the end of the beginning, is it? Yeah. So I looked over and, and said to Ken Henry, I think we have to go home and re-look at uh, the size of the spending cuts that we're planning to deal with the inflationary pressures and the excesses that were in the economy as a consequence of above-trend strong growth, both globally and nationally. Which, and I mean, another way to put that is that you had to go back and rethink the entire budget. Yes, that's right. And, and we did. We didn't, we didn't change everything, but we didn't cut as hard. And that was a difficult political decision to take because we'd been preparing the ground for quite substantial cuts in the budget. And then when we didn't produce cuts of the size that many had expected, we were duly panned and kicked around the country for squibbing squibbing it, that is, not having the guts or the, you know, not being gung-ho enough in this area. And in some ways, I can understand why people did that, because the public discussion then uh, was uh, about all the excesses in the economy, about uh, price inflation, interest rate pressures, oil prices and the rest. And no one was really contemplating an alternative scenario that we could be actually looking at a global economy that was shrinking rather than a global economy that was growing strongly. And shouldn't be forgotten that even by the end of June, or just towards the end of June, the IMF that year upgraded its global growth forecasts. And, of course, it was only a matter of months later that uh, uh, global forecasts uh, and the global economy itself fell through the floor. So how did you feel inside yourself when all this was... when you were realising the gravity 
of the situation you were in. You're the treasurer. Uh, you've been treasurer for a few months. How do well, you? Were you excited? Terrified? Depressed? Well, I, was, I think your first budget is uh, always challenging. Just ask Joe Hockey. Um, <laughs> he and just made the, his a bit more challenging. It's the one that really matters too, doesn't it? It's, well, it's it, it is the one that, 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 that really matters. And, and, and it is a difficult time for anyone in the, in the job. You know, it, it, the, the truth is that the, being treasurer is the second toughest job in the government and a lot of the time it's actually the toughest job uh, in the government. Uh, that's just the, just the way it goes. You've got your hand in everything. You have to be involved in everything. You just don't spend much, as much time on foreign policy as a Prime Minister would, but in terms of the whole domestic policy agenda, you're involved in a lot of it. And, of course, as a consequence of the global financial crisis, Treasury actually became the most foreign-orientated job in the government, more so than even the Foreign Minister. And, indeed, by my... Uh, when I finished after six years, I would have done more internationally than all of my predecessors put together and multiplied by ten. It was very important too, those trips to Washington yeah. uh, throughout this time. You, you, know, it, it, you get that in the book, what, what happens during these trips, the kind of people that you were talking to, sure. getting information from and mixing that, that information with your numbers and with your instinct. Well, I've always been one who's consulted and talked widely uh, all, uh, all of my life. I mean, I actually started off my working life as an academic and I've always had a strong interest in ideas and a strong interest in information. Uh, and I've always found that in politics, if you can get a, a good sense of what's going on, you need to talk to a wide variety of people. You should never get just talk, uh, at court talking to the same suspects. As a Member of Parliament, uh, my rule of thumb is, you know, don't go by the phone calls that come to your office. You've got to go, you've got to go out and generate uh, discussions with people who don't phone your office. They're the ones you need to hear from as well if you're going to get an accurate reflection of what's going on. So that sort of approach I applied very much to Treasury. And I have the highest regard for Treasury and its capacities. But I was always constantly talking to other policymakers, whether it's uh, business people, academics or, or others, about what was going on. And as we started to get these sort of signs that the global economy was you know, pretty volatile and so on. Both myself and Prime Minister Kevin Rudd were speaking a lot to people internationally and both of us, and particularly Kevin during this period, spent a lot of time overseas. And I think we, we benefited very considerably from that because we are having these face-to-face -face discussions with people who were presenting alternative scenarios. Whether they were correct or not, they challenged us to think more broadly and differently uh, about, the, uh, about the, uh, the, the pathway ahead. And, uh, and, and we did that, and I think that did put us in a, in a, in a stronger position because we were moving around having, having those discussions. Like, in the middle of that year, I went to the G8 uh, in, in Japan, for example. Uh, I, I went to London. I had discussions there about the collapse of Northern Rock, which had occurred the previous year, which was a very big bank run in the UK the year before, and, and perhaps the first indicator of what was to come as we went through 2008. It had already occurred in England, and there the Bank of England had not handled the collapse of Northern Rock uh, very well, and I spent time talking to the Bank of England about that through that year. So there was this constant engagement that was going on at both Prime Ministerial and Treasury level, uh, which was internationalising our view of the world and giving us a slightly different perspective, but not one that we were talking about as much in our domestic debate, which was still really just covered in this discussion of what you do about inflationary pressures. One advantage you had was that Australia had a really sound economic base to work with. Sure. I mean, I know at a, a petty political level, I'm sure that uh, there'd be lots of criticisms that uh, you might make of Peter Costello, or but there was a, a sound base and that was the... The, the, the legacy of Costello, Keating and many before them, um, along with uh, what you also explain in the book is a very, was of incredibly sound um, financial system where we weren't exposed to the kind of things that were, were happening in America. Tell us about how much of a difference 
that made to your your job? Well, certainly our financial system had not engaged in the risky lending that had produced a subprime crisis and, in and the United States. And tell us why it didn't. And the consequence yeah. of that was that the system was substantially cleaned up by both uh, Costello and our regulators after the collapse of HIH in early 2000. So we were a major beneficiary of that clean-up. But there was unfinished work that came from that that hadn't been put in place. And I also go through uh, one of the mistakes that uh, Costello made, which was not to put in place a financial claims scheme. That is, when a financial institution goes bust, you know, what guarantee do people have of getting their deposits back? And this becomes a very important question as we go through 2008. So I, I determined that very early on in 2008, meeting with our, our regulators, Reserve Bank, APRA, ASIC and so on, that we would move uh, on that area where they hadn't moved for about a decade to put that in place. And we were in the process of doing that just in the nick of time. But the other big thing I did during this period was to reaffirm our four pillars policy, which I did at the end of June that year. That was pretty important because one of our big banks was looking at taking over one of the other big banks. And if that takeover had actually been going on when Lehman's collapsed, then Australia would have been in a world of pain. Uh, much more substantial than than anything. And so we, we, we were finishing off the repair of our financial system, which meant that when it hit, our financial institutions weren't vulnerable because of any domestic lending or policy or anything they'd done here. They were just vulnerable because they con they'd continued to need to raise finance on offshore markets. And, of course, when everything melted down, that wasn't possible. So we needed to have a financial claim scheme for that, uh, for that, and we needed then to come in and back their borrowings overseas. The bedrock of your um, plan to protect Australia and the Australian economy was the stimulus package, well, two stimulus packages. The first one, $10.4 billion. The second one, $42 billion, which was the building the school halls and so on. I mean, you would never imagine that giving away billions of dollars to Australians could be such a thankless task, Wayne. Mm. Yeah, uh, well, that, that's a very good point, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, because if we hadn't actually uh, provided that cash via stimulus, our debt and deficit would have been even worse. Because the great irony of all of this is that... Uh, the first stimulus package kept confidence in Australia strong over Christmas. We were really fearful that when everything collapsed after Lehman Brothers, and by the way, we almost had a bank run in Australia after Lehman Brothers, the weekend before we announced our bank guarantees, Armaguard ran out of money in Australia because people became panicked that their savings were not safe. You were overseas when I was overseas. The critical weekend where all these things unfolded was in, in, in early October. It started uh, in about the 3rd of October or 4th of October where the Reserve Bank cut interest rates by 100 basis points. Now, when the Reserve Bank cuts interest rates by 100 basis points, you know they think there's a problem uh, in terms of the economy, and there was. Global demand had fallen off a cliff. Uh, but, of course, monetary policy operates on a long lead time, and we're learning that in our economy at the moment. Interest rates have been low for a long time, but the impact of that is only just starting to flow through now. So 100 basis points cut from the Reserve Bank in early October wasn't going to do anything about keeping our economy going for Christmas or to keep people in jobs before Christmas or to make sure that Christmas trading was going to be relatively normal. So the whole thinking about Stimulus 1, which we announced on that weekend in October, was to keep consumer confidence strong and spending up over Christmas so people wouldn't sack their staff going into Christmas which is exactly what we did. And you could say that's, uh, you know, an, an expensive uh, form of spending, but it sure hell beats the alternative because if we would have went into Christmas with much higher unemployment, nobody spending, everyone keeping their money in their wallet, then we would have been looking at a nightmare scenario early in 2009. So that stimulus package is, uh, was one that was created in interesting circumstances and I... We'd started preparing it some weeks before all these events in line with what I was saying before about getting prepared early. But I participated in that Cabinet meeting uh, from Washington where I'd been all that day at, a, um, at an IMF World Bank meeting and then that night as a result of lobbying from myself and Prime Minister Rudd, we had secured a, uh, an emergency G20 finance ministers meeting uh, in, uh, in the IMF building in Washington, which at the last minute, uh, was attended by US President George Bush. And probably like many in this room, I didn't have a really high opinion of US President George Bush at that stage. But I, I was really impressed with him that night. Um, uh, he came in, uh, he was incredibly humble, 
uh, and it started in a rather humorous way. He, he sat down and the chair of the G20 at that stage was the Brazilian finance minister who started by apologising to all the finance ministers that were, were there that his English wasn't very good and bear with him. Uh, and as he did that, Bush tapped him on the shoulder and said, that's OK, mine isn't very good either. <laughs> But the really funny thing about that was that all the microphones are on, so that was reassuring for all the finance ministers <laughs> listening to the US president say this. But Bush then went on, uh, and I was really impressed with this. He apologised to, to all of the finance ministers from both developed and developing countries for what uh, the US had started through its subprime crisis. So of course, at the end, the subprime crisis became a broader crisis involving many more issues than just subprime in the financial system, both in the US and throughout the world. But he accepted responsibility for that, and, and that was important because what the world was going to need was strong US leadership, even though his presidency was virtually over. Uh, that leadership did come in terms of a very big rescue package uh, that they had uh, put on the, on the table as well for the United States economy. They were slower, though, weren't they? They then, were slow, yeah. and, but we were determined we weren't going to be slow. So we are out of the blocks virtually before anybody else. Uh, and I left that meeting with George Bush to go back to our embassy, to the compound, where there's a number of houses in one of the outer suburban suburbs of Washington. And the only place that um, the, the security people who deal with these matters could find a secure line so I could talk to the cabinet room uh, in, uh, in Canberra the only place they could find to put a secure line was in the basement bedroom of the teenage son of the guy who was <laughs> responsible for security. And I'm, you know, I'm still at the stage relatively a rookie treasurer and I'm sitting in the room about to plug in and say, look, I've just been to the IMF today. People are pretty terrified there. We've just had the meeting with George Bush. Uh, everybody's, you know, so this, is, this is not good. Uh, if you've got any doubts about whether we needed a stimulus package or whether we should be doing the bank guarantees, which we were about to announce, don't have them. Um, we're absolutely on the right track. We've really got to get cracking. Anyway, I'm sitting there on the secure line, on the bed, uh, of, the, of the teenage son, and I look up at the wall and there's this poster of Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and I'm sitting there plugging into the cabinet meeting. Now, I'm a bit of a Bob Dylan fan and I'm a real fan <laughs> of, um, of Dylan's version uh, of Dylan's All Along the Watchtower, which Jimi Hendrix does really well. <laughs> <laughs> there ain't no confusion here. <laughs> you know, on it goes. You know, I, won't, I won't try and sing the last words of All Along the Watchtower, but they were an entirely apt... Uh, for the sort of circumstances that we'd been through that week. The week started, 100 basis points cut from the Reserve Bank. We, we quickly get our stimulus package together. We get all the information that we can actually get it out. I go to the IMF and here we are in Washington. Suddenly we've got a $10 billion package on the table and bank guarantees and, uh, you know, we've done it in record time. And as it turned out, just in the nick of time. Well, it worked the stimulus and I think really most mainstream opinion agrees with that the debate is about too much you know whether or not it was too much and and again I mean it I can see how it must drive you crazy uh, this idea that uh, you you you, t you would not that there's any suggestion it's driven you crazy I, I, <laughs> well you're very kind <laughs> uh, but but the, this idea that you have to pinpoint a, a very and Obviously, your thinking is too much is always going to be more successful than not enough. Well, which... it wasn't our thinking that too much uh, should, should govern it, but what we did know uh, that was that the $10 billion package what was only going to, going to get us to Christmas. And what we needed to get was to build a bridge of work uh, which would take people through the next year or two. Because nobody knew what was happening then. No one knew how bad it was going to get. But essentially, through that December period, January, March... Economies were just shrinking dramatically across the world. But most economies were, go, were, 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 were dropping 5%, 10% you know, a month in terms of their output. I mean, this was a really dangerous time. People were talking Great Depression, Mark II. Uh, so in, we were already working on Stimulus II as we published Stimulus mm -hmm. I, which would have some cash payments in it, hence the, the tax bonus checks that have become controversial. But the biggest part of it was the pipeline of work which was reflected in the school halls and so on that we built. We needed to be able to get projects happening by mid-year where people would keep their staff on knowing there was a pipeline of work. 
uh, and school halls were a great way to do that because, A, they could be done quickly. Everyone says, oh, why don't you build a railway? Well, you just can't build a railway. Don't <laughs> say so you've got to do it in, in, in uh, December and start building it in January. It doesn't happen. You know, big, those big infrastructure projects uh, are ones that take a long time. They weren't going to be able to be done to fill a gap of about two years for a pipeline of work so employers would keep their staff on thinking that there was a chance of work coming through. So when you were Whose idea was the halls? Was that oh. Kevin? I can sort of see him sitting there going, what about the halls? What about school? What's your well, kid's school hall School, like? hall, school halls fitted the, the everything. Bill, yeah. fitted, fitted everything, and it was a, it was a no-brainer. Uh, and he was very enthusiastic about it, and I was too, and so was Julia. But essentially, you had the land, and, you know, because what you couldn't do was commit the projects which were going to have planning delays. There'd be no point. Uh, there wouldn't be the pipeline. You had to be able to say to people, these things are going to be up and running relatively quickly. So plans already uh, ready, generally, in most state education departments for all these things. Land available, no planning problems. Um, a, a, an existing bureaucracy which could actually uh, supervise it. It ticked every box. And politically acceptable, well, obviously. We, no, well, mm, I, we didn't have any illusions that when mm. we were going to spend this amount of money that we would be kicked from one end of the country to the other. Mm. Uh, for it. Um, that's what uh, people do to Labor governments who do nation-building schemes. So, you know, we didn't have any illusions about that, but w what we knew was we needed a, a, a pipeline. But what governed my thinking, I, I mentioned this in the book, uh, is that I went uh, to New York in, in January under the guise of going to do events for G'day Australia where we showcase the best of Australian art, culture innovation and all the rest of it. But I really went to see the credit rating agencies because I'd received a whisper that maybe our banks were going to be down, uh, downgraded. So while I was there seeing the credit rating agencies, successfully, I might add, uh, I went off to see the Federal Reserve and had a, probably the most depressing meeting of the whole lot that had went on during this period where uh, they were talking about Great Depression Mark II on everything that they were seeing at that stage. And I reproduced the notes of the meeting uh, in the book. And uh, their, last, their last words to me after I said, well, and they congratulated us, you know, you've been, you've been out early, you're doing the right thing, it's going well. If only we didn't have our Congress, we'd be doing what you're doing. Um, and I said, well, what do you suggest we do now? And they said, use overwhelming force. <laughs> And, and, and the, the, this, these people weren't you know, Marxists or, you know, uh, these were very conventional, uh, uh, highly trained and experienced economists in, in, the, uh, in the US Fed. And we'd already determined that we were going to use pretty strong force and we'd had that in the making. And once again, back at Con Cotton Tree over that Christmas, I spent a lot of time going through uh, the, what became known as the Nation Building and Jobs Plan or Stimulus Mark II. Mm. And one of the most important aims, of course, was to avoid recession yeah. and all the uh, obvious nightmares that that would bring. You describe the, one of the most wonderful days of your treasury ship, uh, 3rd of June, I think it was, uh, when you, the, the numbers came in for the June quarter. Yeah. And you were really n not sure at all? No, we'd already had a negative quarter in March. So we, if we had another negative quarter, which we easily could have had, even though we had all this out there, because when you're making policy in these circumstances where you know, the information is coming in uh, after bad events have happened and every event that happens is worse and, and every piece of information that comes in is worse. So there wasn't a situation where you could say, oh, we've got a size 8 problem, we'll pull a size 8 policy out of here and we'll just join the two together. We weren't in that sort of situation. We were in, you know, completely uncharted waters. So, you know, we didn't know whether we'd done enough and got enough out the door. We certainly had plenty coming for the rest of the year, but we didn't know whether we'd done enough at that stage to actually get that quarter, uh, to, get, to get a quarter of growth. Uh, so we, we didn't have one, you know, two negative quarters, which would have been, you know, recession. And if that would have happened, irrespective of everything we had going, you would have had a really fatal blow to confidence and would have probably meant we would have had to spend more later on to actually keep the economy growing, to get confidence back. What I say in the book is that 
the stimulus packages we had actually at the end of the day were greater than the sum of their parts. That is, we got a bigger bang for our buck than you'd expect from that normal amount of money because we actually kept confidence pretty high. Mm. And I think you, you, there's no way you can you know, get a handle on, on measuring all of that because this is why economics is such a dismal science because it's, it's so much about behaviour and psychology and as it is uh, about... Um, you know, all the technical numbers and spreadsheets and budgets and the rest of it. Well, let's talk a bit more about behaviour and psychology. There's a um, charming little story in the book where you and Kevin, our dear leader at the time, were on an aeroplane together going off to... I think he had a press conference. And his glasses broke which there's no detail how, but I'm, I'm sure that's uninteresting. And you kindly offered to lend him your glasses and quipped, well, finally, you'll start to see things my way, Kevin. <laughs> that's true. Now, it, well, you wrote it, so I'm trusting it's true. And, uh, and I mean, it, this was before, of course, the leadership coup. Uh, and at that time, things actually... I mean, if this was a marriage, the way you describe your relationship with Rudd during these days of the GFC um, is, you know, you wouldn't be heading to the divorce court. I don't even think you'd be heading to counselling the way you describe it. It's a, it, it's a very... Um, it seems that the two of you are in well. quite working harmony yeah. and you're getting along well enough to do something as intimate as letting him borrow your glasses. Yeah, well, I, I had a very professional relationship working with Kevin, but uh, our friendship, as I charted in the book, was something that uh, had, uh, had disappeared well before we came to government. But I worked very well with him precisely because I knew him better than anybody else. Um, and I don't, I don't really say that in, in any other way other than I think that's the case. And so uh, he didn't bully you because you knew him? Uh, well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. I mean, there's... Kevin can be a very difficult person to work with, um, but, you know, when it came to both myself and Julia, I don't think we nec he necessarily treated us like he may have treated some other people, but I, in the book, pay, uh, pay great credit to Kevin for the role that he played during the global financial crisis, which was incredibly constructive and insightful and, and, and quite well done. Uh, but what that did in many ways was, because of the pace and, and the... And the and the nature of what we're dealing with, it meant he probably didn't have as much interaction with a lot of other people during that period mm. as he would normally have had if we were in a normal period of government because, in a sense, uh, we were spent a lot of time firefighting, if you like, uh, in, in that sort of six-month period. But as we came out of that, uh, and we, we had continued to work on carbon pricing, um, health policy, um, you know, we had the Henry Review coming, all of those things, and as he moved out and spread out more broadly, I think it is true that he experienced a number of difficult relationships with a number of members of caucus in the Cabinet. And I, as I explained in the, in the book, that's one of the reasons why, when, you know, when the leadership vote happened, it took off and it really went like wildfire because many uh, people, uh, you know, simply at that, at that stage had decided they wanted to change. In my case, um, none of this was new to me. Um, and I think we've all had the experience at work. We've always worked with people. We, you know, we don't get to choose everyone we want to work with in our workplace, and uh, you know, and we, we work around it sometimes. But uh, during the global crisis, by necessity, the speed of it and so on, we worked together pretty well. But it didn't indicate that you know, the friendship that we'd had years before had returned. We, but we had a very professional working relationship, and I thought he was very effective in that regard. I didn't realise until I read the book. I mean, I think, too, you, you tend to remember things at, when you're witnessing these events. Uh, I remember, and I'm sure a lot of other people do, when you finally really spilled your guts about him. Uh, and I think during the second non-coup, the second when Simon Crean came out and... Uh, no, it was the 2012. It, it, was, the, it was that Before It was 2012, that. okay. Yeah. That, that's the one I remember, and I remember being quite shocked um, as a lot of... But equally, uh, I didn't realise how against the leadership change you were and until the very last minute. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd, I'd opposed the, the challenge against Kim Beasley uh, when Kevin challenged him. 
uh, and uh, I still believe that Beasley would have won that election, but I can see that many other people would have had a different view, and that was contestable. Uh, and Kevin did a fantastic job in that 2007 campaign. And, be and because it was so effective, I think a lot of people naturally, when all these other events come along, they're just having trouble figuring out what was going on and, and how things could change so rapidly. But Kevin didn't actually get to lead the Labor Party for that long. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why all this seemed rather sudden. Uh, but I didn't think it was a good idea at that stage to change, and I, when I had a whiff that it might have been on the cards, I thought I'd done my best to suppress it, and I didn't actually think it was coming. But it came, it did, and when it did, it was so overwhelming, my view was it was going to happen, it needed to be uh, as quickly and as decisive as possible. The real challenge or problem with all of that was that it, the ballot didn't happen in the caucus room. It should have, because it would have been absolutely overwhelming. It would have demonstrated to people that there was a lot more support for Julia than people subsequently claimed. But secondly, and I think most fundamentally, it would have been better, although it would have been much worse for him, if people had actually outlined their, their reasons then. But they didn't out of courtesy to him, and I think at the end of the day that was a mistake. It seems like there were so many moments where you could go back and say, if only, if only, if only, if only Kevin Rudd had returned Malcolm Turnbull's call when he offered to sit down in a room with Kevin to thrash out a deal one-on-one -on -one over the carbon pricing, um, where they would have made a deal that would have gone through. And it's hard to imagine that all the subsequent things... That there are so many points like that. If Turnbull had won the Liberal leadership back, which Abbott won quite accidentally, there, there are so many moments like that. If... The leadership change... Well, Sally, isn't life like that? It is, <laughs> no. but it's not always full of such tragic sure. results, and especially for a great political party, a party of great traditions that, that I think was diminished terribly by all of this um, and lost a shot at, at getting through a turbulent and interesting part of history. Well, that, that's one view, and I'd contest part of that view, because irrespective of the leadership uh, issues, uh, there's a record of, of very good performance across a whole range of policy issues, which is obscured by a bunch of that debate, and some of that's encouraged by our political opponents as well, and that's their job, they do it. But the fact is, uh, from a minority position, uh, we, we got an enormous amount through a parliament that was incredibly difficult. The sad part is that we'll never really quite know what a majority Gillard government would have looked like, uh, but it achieved a lot from a minority position, including in the middle of a, a lot of disunity. Uh, and I think the key lesson from this period is that, um, uh, you know, we, we have to be much, much more deliberative in, our, in what we do with leadership, and uh, it shouldn't be necessarily being pushed around uh, by the same sort of forces that were pushing it around on this occasion. And I'm pretty blunt about all of that in the book, but I don't think it can be or should be allowed to obscure what are some very substantial achievements, many of which are now under challenge or have been reversed. But I, I believe, for example, this country will be revisiting resource rent taxation and carbon pricing in the future. I mean, China's about to go to a full emissions trading scheme, uh, our major trading partner, precisely at the time that we're heading in the opposite direction. We're about to have another debate about sources of revenue in the national budget. Resource rent taxation has got to be part of that equation, as Ken Henry has once again pointed out uh, in a speech that he gave uh, just yesterday. Economic necessity will drive uh, governments of both persuasions uh, in this direction because that's, the force, that's where the forces of history and policy are pushing us, unless we want to be continual, con continually in denial about fundamental issues like climate change or the need for companies to pay a fair price for our resources. How, though, can you create a a reform era again, like, say, the Hawke and Keating reform era, where you can cultivate bipartisan support <laughs> and where it will That's stick. one of the great myths, Sally. I mean, I know you've been talking with Paul Kelly about this, but... The, 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 uh, sorry, I don't mean... That no, 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 no. But the, the fact is that the great reform era of the Hawke and Keating era, era was not universally endorsed by the Liberals, as, as they are trying to rewrite now. Let's just take national superannuation. very important things were the deregulation no, of the... Some of it, some of it was. I mean, you couldn't do that today. You couldn't do something like that today. I was a member of the, of the Keating government. I was there. 
uh, and, and the fact is that uh, not even enterprise bargaining was embraced by them, which has been the fundamental industrial reform which has driven productivity growth in this country. Um, they weren't big partners in all of that, and nor did it go through easily. I mean, the first resource rent tax in Australia, the PRRT, was opposed tooth and nail. This notion that there was this golden era where everybody held hands and embraced reform and Australia sort of skipped into the future uh, is just rubbish. And, but it wasn't and, and, like today. It wasn't. No, no, no it, I'm sorry. I mean, there were leadership challenges. Um, I, I do remember them. I but was, a, I was but a culture of such negativity now that if, 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 if Julia Gillard wakes up as Prime Minister and says, good morning, Tony Abbott is going to say, sorry, it's night time. I mean, we just, there's no... Hey, I agree with you. It hasn't always been like this. No, I, that, that is the bit that has changed. Uh, what has fundamentally changed uh, has been the Americanisation of the right in Australia. And, 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 and the shift of the Liberal Party fundamentally to the right, embracing a, a, a pretty savage survival of the fittest, fittest agenda. So what do you do about it? Because it... Take it on. Fight it. Um, stay, stay true to your values. I mean, when they are fundamentally cha challenging uh, the very basis of what I call the Australian model, which is growth with fairness. I mean, we have been over 100 years, and most particularly over the past six years, a country which is best... Uh, uh, had strong, uh, stronger growth with good social equity outcomes, better than just about many other developed economies. And at every level, that's been challenged. It's been challenged when it comes to the minimum wage. It's been challenged when it comes to collective bargaining. It's challenged uh, when, it, when it comes to the provision of universal quality and affordable education for people of modest means, ditto in health. All of those things are being fundamentally challenged. And the really good thing that I can see at the moment that's going on politically from our perspective, on my side of politics, is the Australian people agree with our support for those things and not the Liberals' attack. And I think that provides opportunities. But what has enabled that has been plutocrats with big, deep pockets and lots of money who are in there backing the, the Liberal agenda... Uh, of getting rid of central, of, of getting rid of collective bargaining and a decent minimum wage, and attacking uh, universal health and education via Medicare and uh, reforms like Gonski. A lot of money washing around Australia that's come on the back of us being one of the most prosperous developed economies in the world, and most of it being deployed on the conservative side of politics to get rid of the fundamental platforms for fairness in Australia. That's that's the difference. Tell us your thoughts then on another thing that's changed, which is the media. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, essentially, at News Limited, in particular two of its flagships, uh, the Australian and the Daily Telegraph, are just deployed uh, as, um, you know, as liberal pamphlets uh, and used in attack mode uh, to achieve uh, objectives principally of the, the federal liberal government. Uh, and this is a fundamental breakdown of balance in media coverage. Uh, and it makes it very hard for parties like the Labor Party to get their message out because that distortion is amplified frequently in the broadcast media as well. In a sense, they run a protection racket for the Liberal government and it makes it very hard for Labor to get its message out. What do you do about it? Highlight it. Talk about it, uh, and I do it. I'm doing it all the time. It's one of the reasons I've written the book, and there's a whole section on the media in the book. Um, many people won't speak out about it because they know they'll be vilified uh, by the same organs that are running the protection racket. And of course, um, true to form, since my book has come out, I've copped a fair beating from one or two of those organs every day of the week. But I intend to keep speaking out about it because I think it's a blemish and a fundamental fault line in our democracy. And if it's not rectified, we're not going to wake... We're going to wake up one morning in which the country that we live in is a stranger to us. And the sort of, and, and, and the sort of uh, fairness of politics where one vote, one value means something is gone because huge amounts of money are deployed all on one side of politics backed up by a media that runs a protection racket for the Conservatives. And I think, it's, you know, I think that's a real threat to our democracy. And made here, in, at Made, in perfect place to, to make it. Um, what, what uh, just to go back to the, to the leadership issues and about how you um, stabilise what the Labor Party is going to do about its leadership in the future, what are the lessons, you think, 
I think the lessons are that no one person is more important than any other uh, in the parliamentary wing and, and that we, sh we should stay pretty much uh, centred on, on our core values. And, and the policies that, that, that follow them. We shouldn't be looking over our shoulder at the, the Liberals on the one hand or the, the Greens on the left, and we should make sure we stay very much centred uh, in this area where we've got a party that's committed to inclusive growth, which, of course, is now a centrepiece of debate elsewhere in the world. Uh, the American model of concentration of wealth at the top and the hollowing, hollowing out of the middle class is precisely what we must avoid in this country and we have avoided because of our commitments to the basics of the Australian model. And it's such a deep irony at the moment that, that our Prime Minister, Mr Abbott, points towards the American experience as the one that he wants to go towards whilst we in this, whilst in, the, in America they're saying, hey, we'd like the Australian model, it's a lot mm. better, you know. Gee, they got a decent fair minimum wage. Now, those, are the, those are the sort of policies. There's no rocket science in any of this. We've just got to stay true to our, our traditional approaches. Of course, problems change, policies change with them, but stay committed to those values where we believe in the dignity of work, uh, fair reward for, uh, for, for work, um, investment in education, social mobility driven by access to affordable health and education. These basic uh, platforms which have made our country one of the strongest and fairest in the world are the place where we need to continue to centre our, our, um, our policy platform and our political uh, uh, operations. It obviously excites you, what, what, the work that you did and um, this, you know, the economy, something I find tricky to understand. And your book is excellent. It really is an excellent book to read if you want to understand how decisions are made during times of crisis especially but also the other elements that go into making those kind of decisions. Um, do you sort of wake up now today you're a backbencher uh, you must miss it and I would imagine um, feel that it was a lot shorter stint than it might have been. Um, no I don't I don't really think about it like that I mean I I think about uh, politics like the rest of our life has speeded up, you know, so dramatically. Um, you know, I was first elected to Parliament in 1993 and I, and I reckon now that a year in politics, you know, is sort of like three years back in 1993, 1996. It's just so much faster. So there's a lot more in it and I, I think your shelf life operating at that level, at that speed, mm. particularly during, the, uh, during the, uh, that six-year period where you couldn't have had a busier uh, set of policy challenges. You couldn't have had a more complex set of political problems than we had during that six-year period was enough really to last me a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, you also say in the book you're still getting over it, that exhaustive uh, marathon of it, but you must... I mean, it, I, I mean I can, you, you're one of the only people who really knows what Joe Hockey might be going through right now, of course. Well, he's not going through an economic emergency, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I went through one. <laughs> it's um, strange, isn't it, that during the global financial crisis, there were you, you know, steadying the ship. It's going to be okay. It's not going to collapse. We're, we've got this under control, wherein there was a real risk that things could have melted down, and here we are today where everything really is pretty steady and there's a crisis. Yeah, well, well, I think that's one of the things that's devaluing political debate. I mean, I think across the board, I, I don't want to say one side of politics or another, but across the board, the sensationalism of so much coverage, which is driven by the structural change in the media to get some new inflection point on something that's meaningless, mm. instantly makes serious things almost sort of meaningless. So, you know, during the, the, the second period of government, so much of the economic commentary was all about the glass being, uh, you know, um, well, less than half full, not more than half full, when in fact it was much more than, more than half full. Uh, and, and, and the analysis that goes on of figures that come out on a monthly basis as if, you know, that automatically says what's happening for a year and, you know, it, it's automatically translated to a whole trend. And everyone's competing because the media cycles faster. So someone else has to find a new angle on an angle that didn't exist in the first place mm. because they've been beaten. So it all rolls over and turn. You know, it desensitises people to 
to, to information, and somehow the more information you get, the less meaningful all of it is. These are, these are structural problems um, driven by changes in technology, particularly in media coverage, that aren't of the order I was talking about before when it comes to straight-out political bias and thuggery. That's different, but that's actually infused into this other process that's happening, this structural change um, in our media, which is also challenges all of us in, in the way in which we operate. And it's just something we've got to get used to and handle better. Um, if you would like to ask Wayne Swan a question, put up your hand and uh, we've got... Uh, we need, do need to get the microphone, though, because it's being recorded. Is that working? Oh, yep, there. And then there's a lady in the middle next. Hello, Tess, yes. Yes, I'm Colin Holmes. I'm the prolific letter writer in the paper that's <laughs> anti-liberal, which is fortunate. And... Uh, I must say it's great to have political royalty here with Wayne. Should be I've been described by... as many things, but not that. <laughs> <laughs> no, good to see you here. Thank you. I, about the book, I went to a garage sale the other day, and here's a book there, Tony Abbott's book, A Man's Man, on the table. I thought, oh, look at that. So I picked it up, threw it down, and the lady running it said, oh, me late father was a big liberal man, but we're not, but... Everyone picks that book up and criticises their house as being a dumb house for having a book in it. Says, I'm going to chuck it in the dumpster. So she went to walk out with it. I said, well, I'll take it home and read it if you throw it out. So I took it home and oh, I read a couple of pages. It wasn't worth continuing. It's under the billiard table. So I hope your book has a better reception than that, Wayne. <laughs> well, so do I. <laughs> um, there's a lady here. Yeah. <laughs> Bridget Walsh, Wayne. Hope you remember. Um, Wayne, I'd just like to hear your comments. Um, one of the things I hear little discussed about the budget and what it's taking off the unemployed and poorer families and so forth is that really there's a lot of social control, not just economics, but social control in that budget. I would also like to hear your comment on designated areas that this government is proposing. Brown Darwin is, a is to be a designated area to facilitate and streamline the importation of foreign labour to a greater extent than now through 457s. And the other thing I'm concerned about is what are Australian governments going to do about ensuring that people do business in this, who do business in this country pay tax in this country? All right, well, there's about 20 minutes there. Um, <laughs> I'll deal with... Uh, so Firstly, I think the budget's full of ideology and there's very little economics in it. Um, they doubled the deficits in their mid-year update deliberately so they could then go ahead and further exaggerate deficit and debt. Uh, there is a, a medium-term budget challenge which we were dealing with and everyone has to deal with, but it's nowhere of the magnitude they're making out. They're trying to actually exaggerate deficit and debt to get permission from the public to do all the things they said they wouldn't do deliberately during the campaign. And, of course, two of the things they didn't talk about or expressly ruled out were time-limited unemployment benefits for young people and the deregulation of university fees. Those combined with the, the, the attack on the universality of education and health I regard as all intergenerational warfare on young Australians. It, you know, our kids, their kids, are not going to necessarily get the same opportunities in life and the peace of mind that comes from having Medicare, for example, or comes from having an affordable degree. And I think that is a real problem, and that's just pure ideology at work. It's not uh, economics. Secondly, on the 457s, I, I repudiate what they're doing there. I mean, yes, that there is a, there is a case for temporary labour to come in to fill genuine, genuine vacancies at areas where, you know, there are, there's pent-up demand. There's a whole series of circumstances that bring it about, and I don't ever argue against that, and that's why you have 457s. But then saying, as they're apparently doing, that there are going to be some areas where they'll let them pay less wages than the Australian standard, well, that's just completely not on uh, from my perspective. Uh, and the third one was profit shifting and base erosion in the, um, in, the, in the tax system, which is a huge challenge. There's a race to the bottom in terms of corporate rates around the world and government budgets in both the developed and developing world are being plundered. Some people are actually happy to let that happen because they've got a strategy of starve the beast. If there's no revenue coming in, then you just keep cutting spending, which is really the objective of a lot of the ideology, which is just to get rid of government in the first place. 
this needs to be dealt with. Uh, it's on the G20 agenda. I don't know that the government is as serious as they ought to be about it or they're going to go as far as they should in terms of the recommendations that are coming through uh, from the OECD, which are before the finance ministers that are meeting as we speak or tomorrow up in Cairns. But this is a critical issue because this is where ideology collides with hard economics because there is absolutely a, a roll gold case to make these multinationals pay, pay their fair share of tax where their wealth is created, whether it's here or in Indonesia or in, uh, in the US or wherever, and it's not happening. And that is constraining the capacity of governments to put in place the sort of services that make a civilised and prosperous economy, namely decent education and decent public infrastructure. So this ought to be, in some ways, the number one issue on the G20 agenda, but it's not because it doesn't fit with the ideological bent of, of, of the Australian government and it doesn't actually suit some other governments who are bigger beneficiaries of this process than others. But the people who get really plundered uh, by, this, um, uh, the, by this process of not paying tax are many developing countries with resource bases who desperately need true value for their resources so they can build the public infrastructure and provide the education they need to lift their, their citizens out of poverty. So this is a, a, a big issue. Wayne, I'd like to tap into your understanding of our monetary system. When I built my first house in Ballarat in the early 1980s, the interest rate was 17%. Will that ever happen again? Pee pardon? Will that ever happen again, interest rates of 17%? I doubt it, but you could never... I mean, no-one can ever say ever. I mean, you know, in, in the global economy, the, the, the global economy is awash with, with, with a lot of money, and one of the big challenges is that um, there are big savings pools around the world looking for, for yield, and that's one of the reasons why we're not necessarily going back uh, to that. Um, but, you know, I can't foresee a situation where that, that's going to happen. Equally, you can't see a situation where rates are going to continue as low as they have been. The problem we've got in the global economy at the moment is that, this is how Ben Bernanke put it to me once, uh, policies like, you know, a, a duck trying to fly but only flapping one wing. So, at the moment... In the developed world, policy is largely driven by expansionary monetary policy. Why? Not because it's the choice of reserve bank governors, but because the, the fiscal policy of the country is gridlocked, as it is in the United States, by a Congress that can't take decent decisions or is so ideologically driven they don't believe in fiscal policy. That is, they don't believe in government. And what we need in the global economy to lift growth is a more judicious use of both fiscal policy and monetary policy and not an exclusive reliance on monetary policy. So at the moment, what that really means is a country like Germany ought to be spending more than it is uh, on public investment and infrastructure and so on. But it's got, you know, it's got some historical issues to deal with there. We ought to be probably spending more on infrastructure than we are really in the circumstances that we find ourselves in and then we might necessarily need interest rates as low as they are. Now, that's controversial, but the point I'm trying to make is that um, one of the reasons why rates are artificially low is you've got this money washing around the world because the world itself is largely dependent for growth on artificially low monetary policy. Uh, you can... oh. All right, I'll ask it. <laughs> Hi, Wayne. Um, I'm just over here. All right, sorry. sorry. Um, the current government has, has left the uh, car industry go, and it's going to go. And when it, when it does in a couple of years, if, um, if you're advising the next Labor treasurer about how to deal with that loss of jobs sure. that will come with that, how, how, what advice would you well, give? Well, first, first of all, they should not have chased Holden, and Holden out and Toyota out. Uh, the problem with the other manufacturers is that unlike to Holden and Toyota, they, didn't have a, they weren't part of a global supply chain. So you can sort of understand the problem that Ford and that had. Uh, I think the most obscene day I've experienced in the parliament in many years was the day that hockey just got up and said they can go. That's what he really said before they'd announced any of their policies. And they went the minute he got up and said it because they weren't going to go through the farce. Uh, I think it was worth fighting for both of those companies in a global supply chain for a whole variety of reasons, uh, namely the technological capacity it brings and the skills and so on that, it, it, that are valuable for the economy as a whole. So I, that's a tragedy. Um, I'm not as pessimistic uh, about our future employment outlook uh, as some would be, or 
although that, although that was a tragedy. We've shown over a long period of time our capacity to grow our economy and, and to see employment grow in a whole range of areas that no one had even thought of. Um, and I think that's essentially where, where we are again. But we're doing it from an increasingly narrow base. And, and, and governments, and Ken Henry said this today, I agree with it, and to some extent it's finally been reflected in a report from the Business Council that we need to pay a lot more attention to, uh, to where we have our comparative advantage and where we want to build things up. Now, in the stupid debate we have in this country about economics, that's then classified as picking winners. So with the ideological fanatics, that's a no-no. It's not a question of picking winners, it's a question of working out what your winners are and, and making sure that you play to your strengths. And we still have plenty of strengths. And we have plenty that we can do uh, in terms of exports, but manufacturing industries around the world are challenged, uh, been challenged by uh, basically technology. Um, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a problem, say, in our aluminium industry, just been a flood of, glut of mm. supply. So these things happen all the time. The question is, what do you do as a country to prepare yourself for the jobs that you don't even know where they're going to be created? And the answer to that is the best possible education and training systems that you can have that give you, that give you people the, the, the best capacity to adopt to the changes that we haven't yet seen happen. That's the lesson uh, of modern economics. Mm. And it isn't that you just pick one narrow area, but you, 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 get, you get your country, you get your human capital in the best possible shape you can, which is why what they're doing in tertiary education at the moment is such a tragedy. And they're doing it in the name of claiming to do exactly what I just advocated. And I think it will have the, reserve, the reverse effect for self. Gentlemen. I thought you were mic'd then, you were so clear. <laughs> I can't read my writing either. Okay, sorry, is that better? <laughs> okay, uh, Bruce Dolkin. Um, I have a concern about the uh, current biasing of our uh, tax system towards investing in domestic or residential housing. Um, creating a, a tax haven for the actual people living in the house to a degree and also from an investment point of view and this taking money away from investment in commercial ventures and infrastructure. Uh, I was just wondering whether yeah. you see that as being a problem for the no, future. No, I don't, I don't quite share that view and that might... You know, that's not generally the view that a lot of... That, that, the view you've expressed is a view that, that many people have. I don't share it. Um, uh, if, if it was such a lucrative investment, we, we wouldn't have a housing shortage. Um, that doesn't mean to say that there aren't problems in the housing supply market. It doesn't mean to say that some of the tax breaks in housing aren't excessive. Uh, so I think there is a case to be made there. But I think a lot of the language on both sides of the argument about where housing is pretty overblown. Um, truth is there's a, there's a shortage of housing uh, because we don't build enough or we don't build enough in the right places. Uh, we've still had and continue to have relatively strong population growth, both a natural gr uh, growth here at plus migration. Both are working well, and that's a big plus in economic terms for our country. We're not shrinking like other countries around the world, which is the biggest problem with the Japanese economy. It's imploding upon itself. So we've got to, we've got to deal with the supply side stuff, and, and in that I'm sure there can be a tweaking of some of the tax breaks, which don't necessarily may not need to be as generous, but I don't see them as being the source of contagion in the housing market that some people claim that they are. We've got time for one or two more. One more. Wayne, um, hindsight's a wonderful thing. If you were selling the carbon tax and the mining tax tomorrow, how would you do it differently? Well, in, in terms of mining, as I say in the book, we should have had it out earlier, and I explained the reasons it wasn't, but I also go on to say that at the end of the day, I don't think that the mining companies were going to agree to pay more tax, and even though they were making publicly soothing noises about that, and still do, 
they were determined to squash it because they saw it as a bad precedent for their operations elsewhere in the world. And they said one thing publicly and did entirely another thing privately. That's the truth of it. And it um, so that's, that's mining. In terms of carbon, you know, look, this romancing about how reform was so easy in the Hawke-Keating era, it wasn't. Uh, they lost a lot of paint uh, over any number of their reforms. They were bitter, they were bloody, they were generally opposed by the same vested interests that opposed the carbon price and all the rest of it. Carbon pricing, it doesn't get any harder than carbon pricing when it comes to structural reforms. It makes me sick to the core to listen to the government run around the country saying we need structural reform. And I say to myself, well, why don't you think the most fundamental structural reform, which goes to the heart of our future prosperity, namely carbon pricing, if you really believe in structural reform? You can't lecture people about structural reform after you've sunk something that is a difficult structural reform with all of the obvious economic benefits to come in the longer term and all of the pain to happen in the short term. That's what a structural reform is. They only want structural reforms which can do the things they want for themselves rather than for the economy as a whole. Uh, the announcement of the second... We didn't get it through in the first government. The, the fact that we actually got one in place from minority position is in itself remarkable. The announcement of it ran off the rails. Uh, it was branded as a, a, a tax immediately even and a, and a broken promise in a whole lot of ways which wasn't an accurate presentation of it, but that was lost immediately and that's regrettable. But that was also torn apart by what I regard as a, a vicious set of vested interests, including large sections of News Limited, who were determined to bring down the minority government. If you go back to 2011, and when all this unfolded, Abbott was wandering around saying, the government isn't going to last, they're going to fall over, I'm going to be Prime Minister by Christmas. And part and parcel of a lot of those attacks that came in were all part and parcel of trying to drive the independence off the government and knock the government over. And they were quite happy to have carbon pricing as part of the collateral damage and all of that. And so it was. Fantastic, um, Wayne, to have you here in Ballarat, the member for Lily. Catch The Fifth Estate every two weeks during our events programs. And of course, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You'll also find videos of these and other discussions at wheelercentre.com. Thanks for your company.